Lord, we are so grateful that so long ago you came as a child, God with us, so that we could become your children. Lord, we come to behold you this morning and to look into your face and to see those eyes of love. And God, we just pray that our hearts will be drawn to you, that we could hear your voice, sense your presence, and that Prince of Peace, we could experience the peace that is beyond all comprehension because you are near. In Jesus' name. So have you ever really, really looked forward to something? Now, I want you to think back to maybe when you were a very young child and you were dreaming of what you might get for Christmas. You know, maybe like a Tonka truck or a Betsy Witsy doll. <laughs> or maybe you were dreaming of a Buzz Lightyear or a Tickle Me Elmo. That was one creepy little toy, wasn't it? How many of you had a Tickle Me Elmo? Anybody? Yeah. How's the therapy going? Yeah. <laughs> well, today we begin the season of Advent, and Advent is this season of anticipation, of waiting and longing with excitement. The word Advent itself means the coming or arrival. And as we saw, the first Advent candle is the candle of hope. It's also known as the candle of prophecy because it represents the hopes of Israel as they longed for the coming of Messiah. <clears throat> it also represents our hope as believers in Jesus Christ for the time when Christ returns to complete the final promises of God and restore everything to what God originally designed from the beginning. So we look forward to this time when sin and evil and darkness are banished forever, Right? When we have a new heaven and a new earth with new bodies and enjoy the very presence of our loving God. I am so looking forward to a heavenly club med. We live in these days, right, where there's strife and hatred and division. You know, when I grew up, ISIS was nothing more than this female action superhero. I don't know about you, but honestly, I'm starting to get PTSD from watching the evening news. I mean, it's scary to think of what I might see next. We live in one of the most blessed nations in all the earth, and yet the poison of sin just seems to be seeping into everything. And still, it's only to a really small degree that we can kind of be in touch and relate to the hurt and pain and injustice and violence of those early Israelites as they faced uncertain times. And so we hope and we long for and we cry out for our deliverer. As we begin this Advent season, I want to kind of take you back on a journey to listen to the voices of the prophets who hundreds of years before Jesus came foretold of this Messiah who would deliver his people. He was God's promise a promise that the people clung to and hoped in, despite all of the chaos around them, much like we have today. We're going to look at God's promises and who they point to. 
the king of promise. And then also, we're going to look forward to the role that God's promises play in our lives today, right? And how we can live in this broken world with hope and assurance because of God's promises that are faithful and true. So long, long ago, in a place far, far away, God called the nation of Israel to be his covenant people. He blessed them, and they were to be a blessing to the whole world. He delivered them from oppression in the nation of Egypt and in their enslavement with a mighty and miraculous hand. And the people were free. They were free, and God commissioned them to bring freedom and liberation to the poor, the oppressed, the widows, the orphans, the aliens, and the outcasts. And Israel's deliverance, what that was supposed to be is a symbol of God's deliverance to the whole world. You see, there's this gravitational pull of sin and self-worship that drew them away from God's plan and purposes. And the Bible records this downward spiral of God's people as they turned to selfishness and rejected God's provision. And they ran after foreign gods. And they mirrored the immorality of the culture around them. They sacrificed their children. They built altars to false gods. And the Lord sent prophets, messengers, to speak to his people and warn them about the evil that they were consuming. But the people, they covered their ears and they shook their fists and they even sought to kill God's messengers. But God said to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 25, verses 2 through 11, he said this. For the past 23 years, the Lord has given me his messages. I have faithfully passed them on to you, but you have not listened. Again and again, the Lord has sent you his prophets, but you've not even paid attention. Each time the message was, turn from your evil road you are traveling and from the evil things that you're doing. But you would not listen to me, says the Lord. You made me furious by worshiping idols you made with your own hands, bringing on yourselves all the disasters that you now suffer. At this time, the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar was assembled with his army at the gates of Jerusalem. All of the fortified cities of Judah had fallen and death and destruction and captivity were right at hand and looming. And in the midst of this very tumultuous situation, God said through the prophet Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? This word, behold, Zechariah says, this word pierces through the darkness like God himself. God says to his people, even in this darkness, even in the midst of your brokenness, I am here with you and hope is coming. As we read earlier, the key verse for our series, Behold the King, is from 2 Corinthians 3.18. And I want to read that to you again. It says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
You see what it says here? It says that as we behold the glory of the Lord, that we're transformed. As we behold Jesus, we become like Jesus. It's a call to take our eyes off of ourselves and to place them on Christ. To yoke our heart to him and set it there and behold the king. I love the word behold, don't you? I mean, it's such a great Christmas word. Behold. <laughs> In fact, there was one Christmas, there was a, a, a very young pastor preaching his first sermon to his church. And uh, he decided as his text, he was going to do Revelation 22 about the coming, the return of Christ. And so he stepped up to the pulpit and he just was ready to go and he started to read Behold, I am coming quickly. But then his mind went entirely blank. <laughs> he couldn't remember anything else, and he started to panic. And then he remembered one of his college professors, seminary professors, that told him, if you ever get stuck, just go back to where you began, your first point, and then everything will come back to you. And so he said again, Behold, I am coming quickly. Still couldn't think of anything. It was blank. So he grabbed the pulpit and just said with all gusto, Behold, I am coming quickly. And when he did that, his knees gave way. And he fell and he pushed the pulpit to the side. He flipped over the pot and landed right in Mrs. Finkelstein's lap in the front row. And he said to this poor woman, Oh, Mrs. Finkelstein, I am so, so sorry. And she said, Oh, don't worry, young man. It's my fault. I should have moved. You told me three times that you were coming. <laughs> and so on that note, why don't you take your message outline out from your program? <laughs> and we're going to launch into our first point. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, by the way, the, the key verses will be up here on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible, I want to encourage you we have Bibles out here in the lobby on our bookshelf, and you can grab one as a gift to you and take it on your way out. We're going to look at what the prophets predicted and what the people anticipated in this person, the Messiah. So first point is this. The people viewed Messiah as deliverer, as a deliverer. <clears throat> See, going back to the glory days of Israel under King David, the nation was strong and united, and the people, they experienced such security and safety and peace, prosperity. David's kingdom was like this big, strong tree. But those days were long gone. And hundreds of years later, David's kingdom looked more like an old, rotted stump. As the nation drifted and it began to crumble, David's heirs were carted off to Israel. And the people honestly thought that maybe God's promises had died. The people were wondering if God had totally abandoned them. And then God spoke through the prophet Isaiah that something new was coming. And so Isaiah 11.1 1 says this. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And then Isaiah continued on and told how Messiah would be filled with the spirit of wisdom and he would bring justice to the poor. He'd be a banner of salvation and gather the exiles from all over the world. God told them that from this dead stump, something new, a branch would sprout, that out of death, new life would be born. 
And so from these promises, the people looked to Messiah as a deliverer that would set them free from the nations around them that had thrown them into exile and captivity. But ultimately, when Jesus would come, he would do so much more than this. And instead of just delivering them from the oppressors around them, he would deliver them from the sin that was within them, which truly was their greatest captor. Second, the people viewed the Messiah as a ruler, as a ruler. So what is the measure of a great ruler? Isn't it true that under great leadership, we experience peace, we experience safety? And Israel longed for this, yearned for such a leader that would rule with justice and righteousness. And since the Messiah was to come from David's lineage, they expected that that this Messiah would, would come to power similar to how David did and rule like David did. See, the prophets spoke of this amazing coming Messiah with extraordinary character. Isaiah described him as a wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace that would have a kingdom that would never end. And Micah says this in Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel will come to you. And in verses 4 and 5, a little later, Micah says this, He will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored around the world, and he will be the source of peace. And so the people looked for this Messiah who would be like this military leader or a conquering king that would come in and throw off all of their oppressors and and adversaries and establish this earthly kingdom that he would rule over. But again, when Jesus would come, he would be so much more than they ever dreamed because he would not just rule over an earthly kingdom. No, he would rule over the heavenly kingdom. And ultimately what he wanted to rule over was their heart. So third, the people looked for Messiah as a comforter, as a comforter. The people of Israel, they were, they were facing these difficult times with enemies all around them, poverty, despair. They looked to the Messiah to be their comfort. And again, God spoke to them through Isaiah. In Isaiah 61.1, it says, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago, but Pastor Ron talked to us about the importance of hope. We can never really experience true comfort without hope. Hope is a a buoy that keeps us afloat while the waves of affliction wash over us. And I'm sure, you know, if we were to travel and walk together through the rubble of southern Florida or southern Houston or through Puerto Rico, and and we could see, hear, and smell the ruin, 
and be shaken by the desperate arms of hope that are reaching out for a better future. And we touch this own desperation in our own lives when we face times of broken relationships, financial ruin, illness, the death of a loved one, struggles with addiction, depression, anxiety. And it's this holy endeavor for us to be able to cling to God's promises and to look for hope in God when our world is coming apart at the seams. People just yearn for Messiah to remove all of their trials and afflictions and to comfort them. But Jesus offered more than removal of trials and afflictions. You see, when Jesus came, he brought the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to live within them, God with them, that God's presence would go with them in every single circumstance that they faced. Now, I remember um, a few years back, I went with some friends from here at the church, and we went backpacking. And uh, we headed out near Grouse Ridge, and we had a great time. I mean, there was a lake there. We went swimming and hiking. We threw some rocks. (laughs) And uh, it was great. And that night, I took my hammock out of my backpack, and I strung it up between a couple trees, and, and I got my sleeping bag, put it in there, you know, and I got in there. And uh, I was just like a little moth in a cocoon, so comfy, so nice. And as I was just starting to doze off, I heard the clap of thunder, loud, really loud. And it startled me, and I peeked out of my sleeping bag, and I'm looking, and the whole sky is just lit up with bolts of lightning, electricity flashing, coming down all over the place, this big electrical storm. And it's just kept coming closer and closer. And as far as I could tell, no one else was awake. And I was just there, and I was feeling paralyzed. I was shaking. I was afraid. And I was just begging that God would not allow me to be barbecued in my hammock. (laughs) And the lightning got closer and louder and strike and boom and strike and boom. And I was just terrified and praying. And then suddenly, it came closer and closer. And then, peace. Peace within me and peace around me. And the storm inside and the storm around me just stopped. And I remember in that hammock looking up and these dark clouds just drifting by. I will never forget that moment. Because in that moment, God was just so tangibly present to me. It was a moment of worship. Because God's presence is truly the greatest comfort that we can have. And so we've heard the promises from the prophets, and we've witnessed the people's hopes. But what about the promises for us? You ever been in a storm? Maybe you're in a storm right now. What happens when the lightning does strike us? Can we still trust God then? And can we trust in God's promises? You know, the really tricky thing about a promise, right? The tricky thing about a promise is that it always involves waiting. Because a promise is something that's pledged for the future, right? And so we have to wait. And I don't know about you, but I think most all of us hate to wait. (laughs) But waiting is this act of faith. 
Waiting is an act of faith. And so when it comes to God's promises, it's not important, not just what we're hoping for in that promise, but how we are waiting. So how do we wait for God's promises? First, we trust in God's faithfulness more than our own. We trust in God's faithfulness more than our own. The central theme of the Bible, if you look at it, is an overall theme. You see this over and over in the story of God with his people, right? God is with his people, and they are incredibly blessed. He dwells with them, but eventually the people, they kind of take it for granted. And then they begin to drift, and then they become self-reliant, and then they become rebellious. And God calls them back. He seeks them out. He corrects their disobedience. And then he welcomes them back again. That's the story of the Bible, of God with his people. And we see it over and over again in the garden. We see it in the Exodus. We see it in the book of Kings. We see it in the prophets. We see it in the life of David himself. That God proves over and over and over and over again his faithfulness to us. While we, we stray, we stumble, we fall. So Jeremiah 33, 6 to 8 says this. Nevertheless, the time will come when I will heal Jerusalem's wounds and and give it prosperity and true peace. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Israel and rebuild their towns. I will cleanse them of their sins against me and forgive All of their sins of rebellion. Jeremiah told the people, you may not be good, but God is good. You are unfaithful, but God is faithful. And God's promises are not based on your righteousness, thank you, Jesus, (laughs) but on his character. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. And Psalm 145.13 says, The Lord always keeps his promises, for he is gracious in all he does. Real hope in the promises of God is based on the reliability of the one who makes the promise. The Bible recounts the history of God's faithfulness And how God is true and faithful and reliable and steadfast. And we're prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. We lose sight of who we are and we lose sight of whose we are. And we become so easily entangled and entrapped in sin. And then we cry in desperation and even shame. God, forgive me over and over, but God delights to be our Savior. Zephaniah 3.17 says this. I love this verse. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. You can just 
trust God that he's faithful even when we're not. And we can trust God's promises to be faithful and true because the promises come from a God who is faithful and true. Second, we express gratitude for God's faithfulness. Are you a glass half empty person or a glass half full person? Yeah. <laughs> Our hearts, they ought to respond to God with gratitude and love and devotion, right? It's important for us to reminisce upon the times with this path that we've taken with Jesus and when he's carried us through the most difficult times. And it's also important for us to dream of our future with eyes of faith that see God's Jesus' guiding hand stretched out to lead us forward. You might be struggling to find joy in this Christmas season. It may just be so difficult for you. But gratitude is this key, see, that opens and unlocks the treasure chest of joy. Listen to what these words that Jeremiah wrote. And keep in mind that he wrote these while he was under a death sentence in prison. And Jeremiah wrote in 33, 11, The joyful voices of the bridegrooms and brides will be heard again, along with the joyous songs of people bringing thanksgiving offerings to the Lord. They'll sing, Give thanks to the Lord of heaven's armies, for the Lord is good, and his faithful love endures forever. For I will restore the prosperity of this land to what it was in the past, says the Lord. And you know where we find gratitude when really our, just our bucket is empty? You been in a time like that? Gratitude grows in this soil of beholding. The soil of beholding when our heart and mind are fixed on Jesus and we behold him and worship him. And then our soul begins to be replenished. And then it just swells with gratitude. And that's how we can remain grateful to God, even in the midst of the most dire and trying circumstances. Because isn't it true, you know, if we rely on our circumstances to keep us happy, (laughs) that can be stolen from us in just any moment. But when we behold our Savior, Jesus Christ, then our souls are filled with points of of light like stars that fill the blackened skies. Do you know what the the real true test of gratitude is? It's not these warm feelings or even the words that come out of our mouth. The true test, it's obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. And so the way that we truly express our gratitude is to set our mind and our will and purpose in our heart to do everything we can to obey the Lord in every way that we can in the strength that he provides. And that leads to our last point. Number three is that we focus on God's promises and not our circumstances. See, no matter how desperate or hopeless our circumstances seem, God's promises, they rise above. You know, Jeremiah, he was attacked, slandered, hunted down. He was persecuted, and yet he proclaimed some of the most hopeful words in all of Scripture. Jeremiah 33, 14 to 16 says this. The day will come, says the Lord, when I will do for Israel and Judah all the good things I promised them. In those days and at that time, I will rise up a righteous descendant. From King David's line, he will do what is just and right throughout the land. 
In that day, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety, and this will be its name. The Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah used that term, the day will come, 16 different times in the book of Jeremiah. It's this theme that resonates over and over because it's difficult for us to wait on God's promises when they're long in coming. You know, the cry of the prophets throughout the Old Testament, you'll hear it over and over again, is, where are you, O Lord? Do you not hear us? And yet we know that God's timing is perfect. Galatians 4, 4 to 7 reminds us of this when it says, But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman. God sent him to buy freedom from us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, Now, you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. That's a promise worth waiting for. (laughs) Jeremiah proclaimed that the Lord is our righteousness. This truth came in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, God's son. Jesus obeyed God's law and lived a perfectly righteous life as our substitute, you see. We can't live a sinful, life, a sinless life, but Jesus did, and he credits us with his righteousness. As an innocent man, he allowed himself to be crucified as our Savior, <clears throat> and so that he could offer to God the only acceptable sacrifice from our sin, which was what? Death. Jesus' righteous life And his innocent death satisfied the perfect, holy justice of God. Completely done. And to those who receive him, Jesus gives the right to become children of God. And we're adopted into Christ. And as we are in Christ, as Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death, we too, in him, have victory over death and victory over sin. And we're free. And Jesus is our righteousness. And so just as the Apostle Paul said this in Philippians 4, 11 to 13, he says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to be having plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus Christ is the king of promise. He's our deliverer. He's our ruler. He is our comforter. He is the coming king who reigns in righteousness. He owns the keys to life. And so, dear friends, we wait with great anticipation and hope with a living faith, doing his work here on earth until the day when he comes and we will see him face to face. And we will behold the king. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we're just amazed at your goodness to us. That just as you say in your word, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
You love to be our Savior. You cherish us. So God, we just come before you to celebrate you, to anticipate and long to see your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives and in the world around us, Lord. We come to give you honor and glory in all things. We come to behold the King. Oh, come, let us 